Well, you know, David, it's funny because ironically, <clears throat> excuse me, the world knows me from the failed fire festival. I'm the ultimate team player. I am the guy who would do whatever it takes to make something work. And um, obviously the, you know, the scene from fire festival, you know, and we always, I, I refer to it as like the white elephant in the room. Like we can't like, we can't avoid talking about the fact that I was gonna give a blow job to the head of customs in the Bahamas to save a music festival by clearing 200,000 plastic water bottles so that everybody could drink water. Now, keep in mind, I run a zero waste event business and we don't allow plastic at any of our events. So why would I suck this dick to do this? Well, yeah, I mean, people had invested over 20, almost $29 million in a music festival. I was demonstrating what I would do to save it. Young and Lazy are a brand new clothing brand aimed to bridge the gap between entrepreneurship and the next generation of crypto specialists, gamers and footballers. The type to monetize their personal brand, compete in tournaments and invest in NFTs. If you're interested in any of those fields, the handle is at youngandlazy underscore on both Twitter and Instagram. The ambassadors they have on are next level and the collector's edition hoodie will be dropping on the 10th of December. Tag me in your stories or mention me when making a purchase and you'll receive 10% off. Thanks for sponsoring this podcast. YEN, otherwise known as the Young Entrepreneurs Network, is a community and support network for businessmen and businesswomen that provides you with all the necessities that you need to move forward as an aspiring startup entrepreneur, especially in Scotland or in the UK. YEN's aim is to change lives and businesses through the scope of high-performing environments and a serious obsession with personal and business development. The founder, John Hamilton, who's based in Glasgow, great guy, has created this company from scratch and now has members all across the UK. You need to find them on at YEN Networking on Instagram and John Hamilton on LinkedIn. Mention Development by David for a free business workshop. Andy King, the man, the myth, the legend. Welcome to the Development by David podcast, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well, David. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Where are you dialing in from today? So today we are down in Charleston, South Carolina. So after about 40 years in New York City and a difficult time through COVID, um, we actually we were quite blessed because we left our apartment in New York City and went up to a farm that we had two hours north of New York City. And that's where we quarantined. And so we were pretty lucky to be on a huge farm quarantining there. And Craig and I ended up starting a farm stand, which you probably followed us on social media, maybe a little bit, but um, we had a lot of fun. But we decided after COVID to make a move. And um, Charleston, you have to come visit sometime, David. It's a pretty cool city, on the water, young, cool architecture, cool arts. Um, struggling a little bit with the politics because um, they don't focus a lot on sustainability down here, which is of course my, my, my main ethos. But uh, Charleston is, a, it's, it's, we don't get any snow here generally and it's usually fairly warm through the winter. So it's a kind of a, not too hot, not too cold. Amazing, I, I will need to come visit. I've never visited the States before in fact. So when I do come over, I'll make sure to, to pop and see you guys. I usually let guests introduce themselves. 
on the podcast because I mean I I could read off the tagline from Wikipedia that you have or um, use the most notable um, way of, to introduce you, which everyone who's probably clicked onto the podcast will know what that is. But I would rather you project to the audience on how you see yourself. Like, what is your elevator pitch beyond the reason everyone's probably clicked onto this podcast? And you spoke about sustainability, so I'm sure, I'm sure that's a huge part of your identity. Well, you know, David, it's funny because ironically, <clears throat> excuse me, the world knows me from the failed fire festival. I'm the ultimate team player. I am the guy who will do whatever it takes to make something work. And um, obviously the, you know, the scene from fire festival, you know, and we always, I, I refer to it as like the white elephant in the room. Like we can't like, we can't avoid talking about the fact that I was gonna give a blow job to the head of customs in the Bahamas to save a music festival by clearing 200,000 plastic water bottles so that everybody could drink water. Now, keep in mind, I run a zero waste event business and we don't allow plastic at any of our events. So why would I suck this dick to do this? Well, yeah, I mean, people had invested over 20, almost $29 million in a music festival. I was demonstrating what I would do to save it. And so would I have actually done it? Not sure, maybe, um, but at the end of the day, I try to demonstrate to people, you know, sometimes you have to do something you never dreamed you'd ever have to do to make a project work, to save a company, to get your startup going. And I'm not suggesting that you give everybody in the neighborhood a blowjob, but I am suggesting you better be fully prepared to do things that you never thought you'd have to do. So there's the, the irony. I have been an event planner for 30 years, mostly in New York, but all around the world and a lot in, uh, out on the West Coast of the United States in Los Angeles and San Francisco, because my ethos and my main focus is on sustainability and creating amazing events that are as close to zero waste as possible. And so if someone said to me today, you know, what do you want your legacy to be, Andy King? I'd say, I want people to say, wow, you know, that was the guy who became famous for one line in a documentary. And by the way, David, you may, may or may not know, we were nominated for four Emmys. Craig and I were on the red carpet with the Kardashians and you name it in Hollywood for this damn scene that I, you know, that I did. And by the way, my father always said, listen, Andy, no one ever watches documentaries and they don't make any money. And of course, there's the irony. Fire Festival, one of the top documentaries in Netflix's history, streamed into over 70, 80, 90 million homes around the world. You can imagine everybody knows who Andy King is. And I made a conscious decision to do the documentary, to create a vehicle so that we could bring awareness to the world to tell people that it was never going to be a scam, that, it was, uh, that you've never seen 400 people working hard in your life to create almost the impossible. And that I could work with Netflix to create the documentary where the true story was told and that I would be able to hopefully pay back everybody in the Bahamas to the best of our ability. And 
that, you know what? I am happy with what, I, what I've been able to accomplish, um, where I've been able to kind of use the Netflix documentary and use the true story to show people. And that's important, right, David? I mean, listen, no one was set out to scam anybody but Billy McFarlane, the founder, but everybody else was working really hard to make something happen. And in the end, as you know, we failed. What I find interesting is that your username on Instagram is the real Andy King, but I genuinely think a fraction of the population really know the real Andy King. You described yourself as the ultimate team player. Do you think that name tag or that um, self-acclaimed title has been laced throughout your entire journey way before the Fire Festival? You know, I think I've always been the ultimate team player. I'm one of nine children, you know, and I have five older brothers who would, you know, <clears throat> be pretty tough on me and a very tough father. And so um, I never really, um, you know, I, it wasn't easy. And so as a kid, especially a kid trying to figure out his sexuality and being raised in an affluent family and a, and somewhat of a powerful family, always trying to prove myself. And, you know, David, I can say that I'm blessed. It was though a two-sided coin where I never got along with my father and I never did, I was never good enough for him. And I never, you know, he and I never saw eye to eye and I liked to cook and I, I loved, you know, hosting events and I loved gardens and I, you know, and I wasn't out there, playing football and rugby and, you know, doing all the things my brothers love to do. And so my father and I never really connected. And we got a telegram or a FedEx saying, you know, that our father had requested our presence at his home on a certain day. So all the nine children flew in to see him. And he announced that he had terminal cancer and only six weeks to live. And my oldest brother, we all sat in the room with him, nine children. And... My father was very posh and very formal, you know? And so my oldest brother said, well, what words of wisdom do you have for us? And my dad said, don't ask me, ask Andy. He's the one person in this family who's gone out and done it on his own and trailblazed. And he's just, you know, he's the one that you guys want to look to and turn to. And I practically fell off his bed. I'm like, holy shit. The guy never complimented me my entire life. And so, you know, the ultimate team player concept clicked into gear where it was like, I've always been the kid that was willing to do whatever it would take to make something work. And I've always been known in the event planning world as the guy, I might have a big Mercedes parked out front with a driver and I live in this big posh house and on and on. But you will see me at four o'clock in the morning with a mop in my hand, mopping my way out of every big event in Hollywood or New York City because my name is on that event and I am no better than anybody else. And that's what I try to show the world. And that's what I was trying to demonstrate with the documentary with Fire Festival. Many young people will say they wanna work with me and I'll say, great, come on board. And I'll say, can you do this? Can you go pick that person up? We need a sandwich. Can you go dig a hole and bury blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, that's really not my job. And I'm like, guess what? In the world of startups, in the world of being an entrepreneur, you wear 
a thousand different hats and you better be prepared to do anything. And I, of course, I mean anything, but I don't push that obviously from a sexual perspective. It's not the right thing to do these days, but there it is. So yes, I've always been kind of the ultimate team player demonstrating it where I was taught by my mother really that no one is any better. We are all the same in this world. We may drive a fancier car and live in a bigger house, but guess what? We all experience the same difficulties and the same challenges every day, right? And I presume there's a slight motivation in you to do these types of podcasts, regardless of the reach of them, because this the super the super virality of that one line from Fire Festival trumps any message that you try and get out to the world because of its viral nature. Do you find it really hard to almost create a narrative and a message and present your true identity to a level in which trumps that meme or that uh, viral scene? Because that's so hard to do. Like, how do you manage that? Well, it's fascinating. So unfortunately, COVID hit at the beginning of March two years ago, whatever it was. But March 15th, I was due to fly to the UK to speak at over 36 universities. And the professors and, and uh, board members were all so excited about the curriculum because I get on stage and I say, okay, and of course all these kids know exactly who I am from watching Netflix and watching the Fire Festival. And I say, you know, how would you like to be one of the biggest failures in pop culture today? And the kids are like, it's not you, you know, it's, it's not you, Andy, it's Billy, Billy. I said, okay, fine. but. Unfortunately, my one-liner made me viral and made me trend as one of the most popular people in the world over stupid Donald Trump. I mean, it was crazy. There it was. I mean, Andy King's meme was everywhere. And I said, you know what? People fail and they fail big every day. And Wall Street doesn't like to talk about it and Hollywood doesn't like to talk about it. But I'm here to tell you that I failed miserably. But guess what? You learn more from your failures than you do your successes. And so I say to all the kids, get out there and fail. Get out there and take a risk. Don't go to work for big corporations that are ruining the world. Get out there and find small companies, small startups that are making positive change. So every day you go to work, you're like, shit, we're helping the world right now. It's not about the money at the end of the day. Yes, we all need to be, we all need to eat our clothes and be comfortable, but, um, you know, I basically say, get out there and fail. And that's an amazing message because kids today are kind of risk adverse. They're scared to take a big risk. But what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? You're gonna move back in with your parents. Well, through COVID, most of the kids I know all moved back in with their parents. And if my parents were still alive, I would have moved back in with them too. But unfortunately, they're not around anymore. But so that's kind of the message. Like, what do you do, David, when you get handed this platform? Well, you try to drive positivity and can I change social, social media? I mean, think about what happened, like the orange tile from Fire Festival and all the celebrities posting at the same time created Fire Festival and made it this incredible phenomenon. And then what took down Fire Festival? The fucking cheese sandwich. I mean, think about it. And that one photo 
took us down like there's no tomorrow. And I was responsible for that cheese sandwich because those chefs worked for me. And that cheese sandwich was only for my employees, not for the guests. But there were drunk people walking around that needed to eat something. But there it goes, like the power of social media. So for me to say, so how do you rise above that image and that reputation is like, well, how do you take a big box of rotten lemons and make the best lemonade ever? Well, Andy King gets on stage and I tell people, get out there and fail, learn from your failures. But when you learn from your failures, your next, hopefully, your next step, your next route, your next road is hopefully going to be positive and helping people and helping yourself and making the world a better place, right? hundred percent. I even know personally that I would rather learn from someone that's failed 900 times than someone that got lucky once. And you speak about the power of social media. And I think that's another reason why people are scared, scared to fail because they might see you fail and it goes viral. So they have this inner belief that if they fail, it is in the public domain now, opposed to maybe 30 years ago where you would fail in silence. So do you think maybe that has a part to play in it? Oh, it's got a big part. And believe me, it's a big part. I mean, truth be told, you, you know, I mean, I have close to 50,000 followers, David, but we had no idea. So I had no idea what was going to happen to me. And I agreed to do the documentary. And then Netflix called and said, listen, we're doing the premiere in New York City, not far from you. And there'll be a thousand people. And um, we'd love you and a guest to attend. I'm like, well, okay. Um, well, first of all, I can't go anywhere with one guest because I've got an entourage of family and and consultants and people who work with me and whatever. But I said, okay, fine, I'll be there. And I need 10 extra tickets. Like, oh no, Andy, it's just you and one other person. And then I just said, well, unfortunately I probably can't make it then. And then of course, immediately the next day, they're like, how many people do you want to have go? And I'm like, I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm just saying, listen, like, okay. So boom, we got the 10 seats, whatever. We arrive at this big theater in New York City. And I look around and my gosh, all the people that worked with me in fire, my whole team, they're all there. They have hoodies on, sunglasses, they're sitting in the back, they're hiding. I'm like, what the frick are you guys doing? Like, shh, shh, we're not here. I'm like, oh God, all right. Well, I. so of course, you know me. I mean, I'm wearing a bright pink sweater and I'm sitting in the middle of the orchestra and my sign, big name, Andy King is row, you know, I'm sitting there. And literally, David, it wasn't until the scene came up and there it was, me. And I look up, I crunch down on my seat and I'm hiding, I'm like, oh no, God. And boom, I say it. And the entire audience gets to their feet and starts cheering, a standing ovation. And it wasn't until that moment that I knew life would change rather quickly. So we never put in a plan for some presence in social media. I had no idea. I just remember my dad saying, no one watches documentaries and they don't make any money. Well. And that was, you know, I, I guess I wish I had put a plan together because we immediately worked quickly the next few days with Fuck Jerry, with Jerry Media to come up with a social media plan. But unfortunately, at that point, they had become so toxic because everybody's saying they helped, they were helped with a scam and they helped produce a scam. And they were only given the same amount of information that I was. They were just as innocent as I was. But they basically called all the principals and said, Andy, we can't, they helped me do 
two or three posts where I got 50,000 followers in three days, period. But I, they had me on a plan to get 5 million followers in two months, but we aborted the, the mission. We stopped immediately because they said, Andy, you can't even tell people that you work with us because unfortunately we have a negative connotation right now with social media. And so we had to back the whole thing down. And it's crazy, David, the power of social media. And I, you know, it's one of the things where I'm just trying, we were, you know, we had a good interview today and um, I'm talking to somebody else now about helping with my social media to try to make the platform more positive, more informative, talking more about my sustainability and really talking more about the real Andy King. Though the world wants to hear me make the announcement on the next fire festival, which will happen. And they want to know, you know, who the lineup is going to be and where it's going to be. And I'll trend higher than any politician around the world. But for right now, I think I'm just going to try to do baby steps to make social media more positive, which is what I try to do every day. One of the biggest things that I really admire about you is your usage of Cameo. I don't think you do that from a personal brand point of view. I think from the outside in, I think you use it as a platform to bring happiness to other people. Because by doing those cameo messages saying happy birthday to David or welcome to Development by David podcast, those messages bleed into someone's day so thickly because they're going to go and speak to their auntie or their grandma or their cousin or their best mate or their colleague saying, you'll never guess who sent me a birthday message today. The ultimate team player, the real Andy King. And I don't think you do that for personal branding. I really think it's part of your message to the world, which is to do good for others and make people happy and flip a negative situation in its head. That's something I really admire about you, Andy. And I may be wrong, but that's my assumption from the outside in uh, to the reason why you use Cameo. Would I be correct with that? Absolutely. I mean, it's funny, David, because Cameo was just coming out. They, I think that the startup had just, they're, they're based in Chicago. They were just starting business as I rose to fame and they reached out to me and my lawyer's like, you're not doing Cameo. That's ridiculous. That's beneath you. My agent, ah, Cameo, what? What's that? No, absolutely not. And you can be sure, David, through COVID, do you know how many high-level celebrities went on Cameo to create some kind of an income? And also, as you say, just a great platform to spread love. And as you know, my hashtag always is like hashtag spread love. And so it is amazing. I shot a several Cameos yesterday and Craig and I are sitting eating dinner and all through dinner, bloop, my phone goes, bloop, five-star rating, thank you, Andy. Bloop, five-star rating, thank you, Andy, you know. And you're right, I mean, at the end of the day, we, our job is to try to make the world a better place. And what do you want your legacy to be, as I touched on earlier? And so Cameo is an amazing platform to be able to bring joy to people and make them smile. And I mean, I did so many shout outs to nurses and doctors and, you know, frontline people. And I mean, and people just loved it. And I don't, as you'll see, there's never just a canned answer. They're usually pretty tailored as well. So it's kind of fun. I need to get my own for this podcast, Andy. That's going to be my next step after we stop recording is to jump on that app and get a personalized message from you. We talk about your success and a lot of people might denote that to the Fire Festival, but you had a very esteemed career for years and years before that. Can we touch, about, touch on that? And can you give me a kind of roadmap to your career before Fire Festival? Because from listening to some other interviews, there's some uh, golden nuggets uh, laced in between those, those uh, career moves. 
a few gold nuggets. Well, let's say I catered my first wedding, cooked all the food at 16 years old um, without a driver's license. Um, now, granted, I got my, my, my grandmother's cook to help me make some of the food, and then the chauffeur helped me deliver the food in the Cadillac to the wedding. But um, there I was at 16 years old, cooking all the food, which was, for 150 guests, it's pretty amazing. And I ran a little catering business during the summers when I was young and when I was at university. And I constantly was out there learning new recipes and, and doing my best to kind of make the world a better place, even at that point, and bringing joy and good food to people. Um, and then in, I always dreamt about, I mean, when I, my first career as a headhunter or a helping with an employment agency in Florida in the 1980s, you were required to do like 100 cold calls a day where you had to call people and ask if they were looking for a job. And then you did to call corporations and see if they were looking for people. And you made the matches. I don't know. And I hated cold calling. But I would call three or four people and invite them to lunch. And I'd immediately, you know, get along with them so well. And then I'd say, oh, I'm having a party at my home on Saturday night. I hope you can. And I was... 19 years old or 18 years old and I'd invite like the chairman of the board of Goldman Sachs. I had no idea that it wasn't the right thing to do. And they would come for dinner and I'd cook this big dinner. And then by the next day, I could call anybody and go, hey, Joe, um, I heard you guys are looking for a director of marketing. I think I have, yeah, Andy, send them right over. They didn't ask for a resume. They didn't ask, but developing these relationships was so vitally important, you know? And I just carried it through. And then I wrote my, first cookbook in 1994 and um, went on a whole talk show circuit and did my thing. And then I literally came up with an idea with a friend. And um, shortly after, this is 94, 90, 93, 94, I was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal as America's first corporate concierge. And it's a concept I helped develop where I could help corporate workers be more productive at work and happier at home. And my department would do your to-do list, like forgot my girlfriend's birthday, it's Saturday. Oh, my in-laws are coming this weekend and I don't know what to do. Oh, um, the, the toilet's about to break on the upstairs bathroom and it's leaking through the ceiling and we need a plumber. Like my department could handle anything and all your to-do list. And I became, you know, as you said, like there was no social media then, but I was on the front page of the New York Times, New York Post, at Pepsi. And this was all at Pepsi's world headquarters. So it was at Pepsi, he's the right one. Uh-huh. There's a picture of Andy King. And then National Enquirer, your daughter needs a baby elephant for your birthday party? No problem. Andy King can do that, you know. So there I was, the ultimate team player even then. And here's the irony is that I've been doing a series of entertaining for Pepsi as my job as the head concierge. And um, a chairman of a very prominent investment banking firm, I won't name the firm, called and said, Andy, we'd love to come. Will you come into our office in New York? And we're going public on the New York Stock Exchange. And we want to have this amazing big party. But we want to talk to you about launching your concierge service with all of our employees here because we want to, you know, we want to be an employer of choice. We want people to want to come work for us. I said, so I went and I had the meeting and we talked about the concierge service, which we put together a whole plan of me launching that, which I did. But they said, but most of all, Andy, 
we want to have this big party and we want you to host it because you're the master. We're reading about all these things you do. And I said, okay, keep in mind, the most expensive party I'd ever hosted, this is 1994, was maybe $200,000, 200 grand. So I said, okay, fine. I said, all right. Um, they gave some descriptions of, we want to do this, we want that, we want 1,200 people. And I said, well, what's your budget? And they said, oh, um, $2 million. And I'm like, <coughs> and I didn't even know how to respond. And I finally just said, well, are you flexible on the budget? And they said, sure, we'll spend three if you come up with a better idea. And I mean, I'm like, oh my word, let me tell you something. I bought my first beautiful big sailboat with a commission from that one party alone. And that launched my career in 1994, um, being on the front page of Wall Street Journal. And then fast forward, I become, as you know, you know, if you watch The Wolf of Wall Street, that was my world. I hosted all those crazy parties on Wall Street for years. And, and money was no obstacle. Can you imagine, David? Crazy. And we talk about some of the wildest parties that you, you um, put together between Pepsi and Investment Bank. What are your wildest stories? Oh, my gosh. Let's see some wild stories. Is it true that you facilitated someone in finding their birth mom whilst working at one of the companies yes at pepsi it was a incredible there i was because i was known for like i could get you a theater ticket that no one could ever get i could get you into any restaurant you could never get into because i could call anywhere and say i represent two hundred and fifty thousand employees with pepsi and i'd love to talk about bringing you business and they're like oh my god when can you get her this is great and so most people you call and say, can I get into your restaurant? They said, yeah, how about February? You're like, oh, well, I was hoping for next. No, no, February or March. Now I could call and say, listen, here I am, the big concierge, because there are plenty of times where Broadway shows can't get people to come in. Restaurants need to fill seats at five o'clock in the evening. You know, you go down the list. So I became the master of doing the impossible for the entertainment world and what have you of giving the accessibility to people. And believe me, David, like this needed to be successful for the chairman of Pepsi, as well as the people in the mailroom. Like this had to work for all levels of employees. And trust me, I made it happen. One day a woman arrives and she was in a very high level marketing position. And she's like, Andy, you know, and I said, oh, you know, Mar call her Marjorie. Marjorie, how was your holidays? Horrible. And she starts to cry. And I'm like, oh no. And I said, well, What's going on? And she said, I've spent the last holiday not knowing who my blood parents are. I was adopted as a child and I can like, oh, you sure you just don't need a theater ticket or you don't need to get into a restaurant? Oh my gosh. Well, let me tell you, boom, I was able to learn about an agency in LA that finds the blood parents of adopted children. We went through a whole process and by the next holiday, which was Easter, she had Easter Sunday with her mother and father who she'd never met in 49 years. And I mean, talking about amazing. I mean, I'm not Jesus and I'm not Mother Teresa, but you know, with the right resources, you can make things happen for people. That is absolutely insane. I don't know if I've just imagined that or not, Andy. That is incredible. Oh, wow. So there was really no limits to the sphere of influence that you could build. 
there wasn't because I had the power of, of a big corporation. I mean, think there's a no solicitation policy with most big corporations. You can't get in there. You can't like, oh, I've started a deli. I've started a little store and I'd love to have your employees come in there. No, we've just opened a garage and we'd like to offer a discount for oil changes for all your employees. No, oh, we've opened a country inn and we'd love to give a discount to your employees to come visit us on weekends. No, but with me, yes. Because I would go and interview all of them and say, wow, I love your service. Would you like to come to our office building once a week? And I'll give you 60 oil changes. And then I say to all the employees, drop your keys off on our desk. And at the end of the day, pick them back up. And for $25, your oil will be changed. And you don't even have to leave your office. And your car will be put back in its spot. I mean, this is what we were able to do with the volume, you know. But what ended up happening is that there's only one Andy King, the real Andy King. So it was a little bit hard to like expand this concept and me being able to implement it in corporations all around the world. A lot of it was based on my personality, but I'm not saying that a lot of corporations have, many of them have concierge departments today. Think of how common it is now, David, where work and family issues are so challenging. And there are many young moms who are trying to you know, have a career and still be able to cook for their three kids at the end of every day. Um, you know, how do you balance that? And that's where I was able to come in even in the, in the 90s and show people, you know, how do you balance work and family? I will help you do that by taking over a lot of the tasks that you can't do. And now with my world of sustainability, you know, you bring it up one more notch, but I focus on environmental but I also focus on social impact as well. And think about it, David, like me focusing on hiring women-run companies, minority-run companies, me focusing on companies that have good hiring practices, me focusing on companies, when I say focus, hiring them to help me do large events, hiring them for me, you know, and we, we focus on local farmers and local, let me tell you, like, in the event world, you need an edge and you need to be able to show people that you do something different, but you also want to be able to have guests leave going, wow, that was amazing. And I, you know, in the earlier days, let's say I, I was hired by a big corporation to do a major wine tasting for them for a thousand people. And I, you know, I said, how do we do something different where people will remember? And I read about a family who had recently purchased a cheese dairy farm and they were making cheese from goats and it was a beautiful goat cheese that was selling very you know a very uh, expensive cheese but amazing story here's the story they had an autistic son who really couldn't get along with anybody in school and he he you know they had, were homeschooling him after a while and they didn't know what to do and they couldn't find a career for him and they learned that autistic kids like repeat motion. And they got Jeremy, their son, to come out and start helping milk goats to make the cheese. And guess what? In a short period of time, over half of their workforce were teenage autistic kids that were out there every day milking the goats to make the cheese. And when, you, when I brought the mother and the father into this thousand person event to get up on stage to tell the story of, wow, hope you're enjoying this wine tasting tonight with all these vineyards and all these cheeses. 
we're a cheese maker here. We want to tell you why we're so excited about selling our cheese and making it and meet Jeremy, our son. Can you imagine, David? This is what I do every day in creating a narrative to demonstrate to people that, you know, life isn't perfect for anybody. And why not find companies, find individuals who are doing amazing things and highlight them and help them tell their story. That only makes me shine and it helps the world to be a better place. You're such a wonderful human, Andy. That's such a warm sentiment. You almost are speaking about like having like an organization having like a market edge. But I think there's a lesson or self-development lesson um, for the individual here. Um, I think I've spoke to you via voice notes that I get to chair our social mobility network at KPMG, which involves um, helping disadvantaged young people enter and progress in the workforce. And I'm currently reading a book by a psychologist called Meg Jay about, it's called The Defining Twenties. And it's about, um, it's called The Defining Decade, Why Your Twenties Matter and How to Make the Most of Them. And I'm learning about identity capital, being known for something. And I think there's a huge problem within the community of the low socioeconomic background workforce that they don't want to disrupt in an organization. They don't want to be known for something because they feel like an imposter. They don't want to get caught out. So they don't have any identity capital. And it's called capital because it can be, it can be cashed in for rewards, progression, promotion, pay rises and such. And I think your reflection there, Andy, is a testament to that. Um, and I, I think I'm known as the social mobility guy or the podcaster, and that's what I can cash in. I cash that in to speak with you, Andy. And I think your lesson there is just absolute paramount of that. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that to life. David, thank you. Well, on that note, think about it, David. So have you read the book by Father Boyle? No. So you'd love Father Boyle. So Father Boyle is an ex-Catholic priest in Los Angeles. And he started an organization called Homeboy Industries. And now he has Homegirl Industries. So he takes predominantly disadvantaged kids out of low-income neighborhoods, but he focuses mostly on gang members. And he gets the gang members out of the gangs and he puts them into the workforce. And he has created cafes and he's created painting companies and bakeries and he's created retail stores. And they're all employed by these ex-gang members. And it's amazing to see where he's bringing, you know, legitimate legal purpose to these kids that are in their 20s, just as you're describing, who never thought that they could they never really wanted to shine too much. They never wanted to like, they're just in the background. And Father Boyle, it's fascinating because when we've hosted some events out in Los Angeles, I contact him to get staffing. But then when I try to describe the situation to some of our posh, snobby, you know, more wealthy board members, they're like, what? You're gonna have a gang member take my coat and coat check? Are they gonna steal my handbag? I'm like, this is Mrs. Vanderbilt. Get off your fucking horse. No, they're not stealing anything. We're giving people an opportunity and we're helping people get out of negative situations. And there's usually a pushback for me a little bit as you can imagine, Dave, but, but at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do. And they always shine and it's amazing. And I love that fact that you're focusing on that as well, because you know, there's just, the statistics are staggering when you look at like, the one percentile of the country or the world or the, the 1.1%, whatever it is of people that actually have money and have the, 
the luxury of options and choices. 1%, 99% of the world doesn't, right? And how do you help create opportunities for them? And how do you help them get to places where they would never be? And I, I can tell you one fun story. I, I was host, helping Mark Ruffalo, the wonderful actor, launch a charity for him called The Solutions Project. And so Mark, um, and this is where he envisions and he wants the world to be embracing 100% renewable energy by 2030 and 100% by 2050. And that's a solar panel on every roof and an and a electric car in every driveway and a, and a wind turbine and a cistern, you know. And we're on our way, but we've got a long ways to go. So he was launching his charity and I said I, I wanted to do the launch for him and he was thrilled. And we had a lot of Hollywood celebrities. This was in New York City. And I got a graffiti artist to paint murals on the side of a building. And, and I made it a zero waste event. It was unbelievable. But the point of this story is that I went around to all of the tube stations, all of the subway stations to find performers, piano players, flute player, guitar players, singers, a dancer, break dancers, you name it. And I got them to come and I said, listen, I will pay you $100 to come and perform for 10 minutes, you know, whatever. And they're like, oh, you know. Now I wasn't sure they were even gonna show up, but many of them had a website, a lot of them had a card, you know, it was kind of cute. So point of the story is that I got this cute girl, Katie Shaw, and she came to play her guitar and sing with two pals, two guys. And she was unbelievable. And keep in mind, Mark Ruffalo could have hired Katy Perry to come and perform. But the point was, was I was trying to demonstrate, like, how do you support the local community? So Katie Shaw gets up and she sings. One week later, Mark calls and he's like, Andy, who was that girl? She was unbelievable in the guitar. And I was like, oh, well, um, you know, her name is Katie Shaw, blah, 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 blah. And he said, oh my God, will you reach out to her and tell her that I'm hosting an event in two weeks and I'll pay her $10,000 to perform. Now, can you imagine? Now, I can't change every semi-homeless performer at a tube station's lives, but you can, you have the power of change and influence by setting up situations where they get the proper exposure. And I called Katie and I was like, Katie, it's Andy King. She said, oh, Andy, how are you? I said, good. I said, listen, I have some big news. Like Mark Ruffalo called, he wants to. She's like, what? And she started to cry on the phone. Then I started to cry. So the conversation was a disaster. He's like, well, he wants you to sing for him. She's like, what? I'm like, yes, he wants to pay you $10,000. You know, and of course she's crying, I'm crying. But at the end of the day, as you're saying earlier, I mean, being able to help people from disadvantaged backgrounds is so vitally important. And my ethos, as you know, from the beginning of the conversation, as my mom would say, is that we are no better than anybody else. We are all the same on this planet. And you, we need to figure out a way to treat people that way, right? Yeah, we're so very different. And that's what makes it beautiful. The diversity of thought, the diversity of culture too. But from a self-importance point of view, you're absolutely right, we're, we're, we're all the same. And the, the one headline that I've got at the top of my, my notes for you, Andy, is to find out who the real Andy King is. And I think that last piece of dialogue together was it, it, it achieved that and way, way more. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm just so proud to have you on. But I need, I need to move on swiftly to Billy McFarlane, unfortunately. <laughs> and I say unfortunately because meeting him was unfortunate. 
when did you meet him and what was the uh, nature of that relationship? Well, poor Billy. Well, I shouldn't say poor Billy, but well, poor Billy now. Um, Billy was raised in a little town in New Jersey in the States here, not far from where I was raised. And I knew his family and um, I went to work with Billy years ago to help him at a young age build a little company that he had developed a black credit card that you would take your ATM card and you'd swipe it. And you had this black card that was thick metal and heavy and oh my gosh, you felt so important. And we went all around New York and we developed priority relationships <clears throat> for these kids. It was $250 a year, maybe 500 at the most, but $250. And we were able to get you premium treatment and, and uh, priority uh, treatment and, uh, you know, and discounts and all different kinds of things that gyms and restaurants and Broadway shows and museum openings and you name it. It was a great way, but, but what Billy was trying to do was create a community, which I loved on getting young kids to meet each other when they moved to New York City. Because when you're a young kid and you graduate from university, you get a job at a big company, you have no time to meet anybody. So I was able to counsel him on buying a brownstone and hiring a butler and we had a chef and I did a series of events for him, wine tastings, um, food tasting dinners, art openings, musical performances. And these are all things that the kids were all invited to if you were a member of the black card. And, um, and I, it was a great, great concept. Um, Billy's next company that he decided to, to venture into was something called the Fire app, which is how to book famous entertainment on your phone without going through the agents and the managers and getting things complicated. And so I love the concept because as an event planner, I go through that every day of trying to locate a celebrity, a big musician, and suddenly they say they're gonna charge $100, which is obviously not the case. But then when you go through the manager and then the agent, and then suddenly it's $1,000, not $100. And then you go through this, this, and this, and it's now 2,500. I'm like, what happened to the $100? Like, so Billy jumped on that concept and he decided that the best way to really launch the app was to host a music festival, the first luxury music festival in the world on a small island in the Bahamas owned by Pablo Escobar. And Pablo, of course, as you know, is dead. And he was the biggest drug dealer in the world. And the island has the largest private landing strip. So Billy called me and I said, here's what I want to do. I said, okay. And I was working with him on it and trying to help design promotional parties for him in New York and in LA, et cetera, et cetera. And then things kind of went quiet a little bit and that was fine. And then he'd call and he'd say, listen, Eddie, what are you doing next weekend? I have a group of models. We're all heading down to the Bahamas. We're doing some photo shoots. We're promoting my music festival. I said, unfortunately, I can't go. I'm booked, I'm booked up for events, but good luck with that. And then boom, I was hosting the World Cup Pro-Am Ski Championships in Squaw Valley, Northern California. The phone rang, it was Billy. And he said, Andy, I'm hosting this music festival in the Bahamas. We're having a lot of issues. And can you get down here and help us? I'm like, oh gosh, Billy, well, I can't, you know. And I should have known. He said, well, when are you free? I said, maybe in four days. He said, I'll send a jet to pick you up. Now, I should have known then 
the jet is probably, you know, 50 grand. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, well, obviously things are different right now. He's got a lot of investors. And I said, all right, fine. I get on the jet, I fly down there, which is challenging, obviously, being Mr. Sustainability, where I'm not supposed to be getting on private jets by myself. No, I'm supposed to be on a commercial jet with 10,000 other people, but I did it. And then, as you know, the story, you know, I had six weeks to save this music festival with no infrastructure, no plumbing, no electricity, nowhere for anybody to sleep, nothing. And I just kept saying, you know, if Woodstock was noted as the most popular, most successful music festival in the world, no one talks about the drug overdoses and the mudslides and no food and the disasters, um, then if Woodstock succeeded, so will fire. And I took it on. But as you know, anything that could go wrong went wrong. Every flipping day, something else went wrong. And at the end of every day, we had a big meeting with all the employees. And I would stand up there and say, don't worry. And they go, Andy, are you pulling the plug? Are you canceling it? Not yet, not yet. And I'd leave the room, I'd go outside and I'd burst into tears. I'd go, oh God, what am I doing? But I kept persevering and I kept pushing forward. And we were this close. We were very close to delivering a product. Would it have been the product? As you remember from the documentary, I arrived in the Bahamas and I said to Billy, I will take this on under one condition. You change the messaging and you tell people this is not a luxury music festival. It's going to be a really cool festival in the Bahamas with beautiful water, beautiful weather, fun food, bring your bikini and your bathing suit and you're sleeping in tents on the beach. That's it. Sadly, he changed the messaging 10 hours before the first guests got there. And that, of course, was the big lead in to the collapse of the entire thing. Well, people might be clicking onto this podcast not knowing what the Fire Festival is. Can you bring to life the ideal concept of Fire Festival, what it should have been, and then contrast that to the actual reality on the ground? So Billy had a vision and a dream. And the dream was to create Fire Festival, the first luxury music festival in the world with luxury accommodations and flying in chefs from around the world and having food that was amazing, the top liquor brands, top musicians on the most beautiful island in the Bahamas with the most beautiful beaches with every celebrity you ever want to hang out with and every beautiful model and big super yachts and lots of private jets. And I mean, just the perfect experience for three days to go and enjoy amazing music. And unfortunately, he picked a location with no infrastructure. He picked a location which had previously been booked for a major yachting regatta. So any hotel room or any beautiful home was already rented. He picked a place that had no electricity and no plumbing. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to create something like that, you need the right infrastructure in place. You need to be able to give yourself the right amount of time to plan it, not six weeks, but probably nine months to 12 months. And you want to have the proper funding. And Billy, you know, kept flying back to New York and out to LA and back. Every time we'd run low on money, he'd go to try to raise more money with different investors. And so 
It just wasn't the right formula. And in the end, a, a storm came through 36 hours before the guests were to arrive, wiped out the village, blew over the tents, soaked the mattresses and the beds. Um, we had no power for the cooking tents. Um, we had no luxury transportation. The amount of luxury homes were minimal. Um, anything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And we had six to 800 kids that actually arrived before I canceled the last few jets coming out of Miami because I said, we can't have any more people arriving here because we don't, it's not what they think it's supposed to be. And we need to avoid having a backlash the best of our ability. As you know, that didn't work because of course it went viral around the world. One photograph of one cheese sandwich and, and, and think about it, David, half the acts, Blink-182, Little Yachty, Major Laser, they were all 10 minutes away in a beautiful hotel on Nassau, ready to fly over and perform. We had a $2 million stage set up on the beach, absolutely beautiful, ready to go. But no, 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 the cheese sandwich goes viral with a little smartphone and boom, boom, boom. I mean, every manager started canceling every act and it just fell apart from there. What was the collateral effect if these influencers and celebrities were promoting the fact that they were appearing? What was the collateral effect on them at the fact that the the fire festival was ultimately pulled and wasn't to the, the standard that uh, was advertised and marketed? Well, I think it's changed the culture of social media completely, right? So if you're going to endorse something and if you're going to be paid as an influencer to do shout outs and post, you better know your product and you better know that whatever you're promoting is legitimate and is actually going to happen. So I do feel for so many of the models and so many of the people that got caught in that, you know, negative backlash because they had no idea. They were all going under the pretense as I was and the 400 people working with me that this was gonna be an amazing music festival. I mean, that's what we were all banking on. We weren't banking on the fact that it was underfunded and a storm came in and the, you know, the village was destroyed and no one was gonna perform. Um, so I think it's changed the entire climate of social media today with influencers, fire festivals single-handedly. By now, whatever you get involved with as an influencer, you better know exactly every aspect of the product and whatever is planned and whatever's going to happen because your name's on it and you're liable. Is it true the Fire Festival is the reason why now Instagram mandates that you have to put hashtag ad after sponsored posts? I would say so. You hit the nail on the head. That's incredible. That's incredible. I know. And then how would you like to be affiliated with that? But, you know, I'm taking my lemonade and I'm making the best lemonade ever. And that's what you do. And I think that what do I want my legacy to be? I just want people to say that Andy King made the world a better place. And that, you know, I don't think everybody can do that, but you can do that. But I don't think people are focused on that. Like, David, think about it. Like, they're not going to say he had the coolest cars in the world. He had the biggest house. There are too many people out there like that. How about that he made the world a better place? And wow, you know, 
it's a gift that I have of storytelling. And it's a gift that I have to share positive energy. And that is what I took on as my commitment as a viral star to accept that role. And, you know, it's not easy losing your anonymity. It's not easy having people wanting a selfie every five minutes. It's not easy being pointed at across the street. It's weird. But at the end of the day, if I can turn that into positive stuff, then I'm doing the right thing. Well, Andy, you can see me smiling ear to ear. I'm sure the listeners are also smiling ear to ear. And that's a testament to that. But you kind of spoke about the trauma there and the lowlights of um, losing your anonymity. Billy McFarlane's in jail and everyone's forgotten about him. He's essentially anonymous now. No one cares about him, but now the spotlight's on you. What have, what's been the kind of predominant lowlights of um, that spotlight shifting from him to you because you're still out in the public uh, unlike him? I think that, you know, I won't lie. Like there's been a couple situations even in Hollywood where some of the big publicists will say, oh, no, 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 we don't want you to align yourself with Andy King. He's toxic. Like, I'm toxic? What? All right. So, yeah, it's the white elephant. It's the blowjob. But at the end of the day, you need to look beyond that and say, what was Andy trying to, you know, I, um, and you probably, you've heard the story before. When I told my business partner that I told that story to the producers of Fire, he's like, you did not. And I said, well, you know what? We'd been shooting for eight hours. At the end of the day, like cameras were off, I thought. And the, I just said, you know, let me, I'm going to tell you one last story. And of course, I told the blowjob story. And so they couldn't believe, you know, the producer couldn't believe, no one could believe, like, oh my gosh. So two days later, my business partner says, Andy, you got to call them. They got to pull that. They cannot. It's going to ruin your career. It's going to ruin everything about you. Like, you got to pull the story. So I called and they said, Andy, you don't understand. Like the fire festival documentary is so intense that it's just, oh my God, oh my God. And then boom, the Andy King piece. And then everybody laughs like, oh my word, what did he really? And then they replay it again. Then they replay it again. And then you continue on to the intensity. And they said, you know, we need that piece in the documentary to prove to people just how crazy it got down there and what you were willing to do as one of the top event planners in the world to fix the situation. So that was the reasoning for it. But then coming out of it, Billy's in prison. I'm now the face of fire. And, you know, Craig and I were at a major fundraiser at shortly, well, it's just right before COVID in New York. And people like, oh my God, it's Andy King, it's Andy King, you know, pictures and whatever, publicist, a couple of reporters. And then this woman comes up, she's like, am I supposed to know who you are? And then somebody said, oh, that's Andy King from the Fire Festival. Well, what's that? Oh, remember, it's the music festival in the Bahamas that went wrong. And she said, oh, he's the scammer? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And that was the beginning of the journey. It was like, I am not a scammer. Like, I am the one that was trying to fix a negative situation. And no, there was never scam in my, in my dialect, dialogue or nature. But that's what you come across every once in a while, which is like people going, you know, and then I have a big celebrity who says, Andy, love to do this project with you. And then his agent will call and say, Andy, I'm so embarrassed, but you know, the publicist says you're toxic. Like he can't be aligned with you because of fire. And I'm like, 
I've worked for 40 fucking years to build a successful career. And now one line and one documentary makes me toxic. Like, and then, you know, keep in mind, David, like I had eight television show offers, four podcast offers. I shot my first big television show. Netflix bought the series. Everything is flying along. Boom. And I'd agreed, you know, that I would back down on the event planning. Because as you may or may not know, David, what are the three most stressful jobs you can have in the world? Being an astronaut, an EMT, or an event planner. And I'm like, oh my God, really? I chose one of the three most stressful jobs. So people call every day, oh, I want to be an event planner. I'm like, well, I don't know. You need to rethink that a little bit. But I'm really good at what I do. But here it is, you know, it's not easy. And I made the conscious decision after fire being offered all these television shows to kind of back down on event planning and focus on television. And within a month, COVID hit and all shows got put on hold. And so it's been a journey for the last two and a half years, you know, and we've been working on fun projects. As you may know, I hosted the largest virtual music festival in the world called Room Service. And it was, it was uh, aired on Live Nation and Trap Nation. And we had over a hundred performers. It was totally cool. I raised a lot of money for COVID related charities. Um, I've been working on this wonderful sustainable event planning course in the UK, which got launched a few weeks ago, teaching event planners how to do as close to zero waste events as possible and making them cooler, more sexy, really fun, but not destroying the planet. Um, so I've been working on some really cool, fun projects, but between, you know, fire and then COVID, it's been a psychological, you know, challenging journey still trying to be that upbeat guy. Can you imagine I get Billie Eilish calls me to ask if I jump on a Zoom call with her and her top employees who handle her world tours because there ain't no world tours right now because of COVID. And I'm like, oh, I'm the guy that's supposed to make you laugh. I'm the guy that's supposed to bring happiness to your teams right now when they're all struggling. And, um, you know, it's a role I've taken on, but trying to figure out ways to monetize it has been a challenge. And that's, that's been the journey, David, is that people assume, like I didn't get paid one penny to do this documentary, not one cent. And it's sad to learn that most people that did it with me got paid and I didn't know. But I agreed to do that to create a vehicle, as you know, to pay back over in the Bahamas, not to get paid. And I get approached by people every day, oh, will you, I've written a screenplay. Will you review it for me? And I'll say, okay, fine. And I read it and I, I give them some, you know, suggestions. And then they say, okay, well, can you lend us a couple million dollars to do it? I'm like, who do you think I am? I mean, shit, what? I think you got the wrong number. And then, you know, another call, hey, we want to produce this big festival. We want to do it with you. I'm like, listen, like the last group that approached me was going to pay me almost $2 million to use my name and to do a, a wonderful sustainable music festival, which we had to put on hold because of COVID. What do you mean, you know? And then they're like, oh, after the third call, Andy, can we borrow some money from you to pay all the lawyers who are working on I'm like, this is not how it works. But they're like, you made a lot of money from fire. And I'm like, I didn't make any money. And as a matter of fact, that festival cost me over a million dollars in my own personal money. And I go around, you know, doing speaking engagements before 
obviously before COVID, to raise money for GoFundMes to pay back everybody in the Bahamas. But it's amazing the average person would look at me and say, oh, there's Andy King from Fire. He made millions off of that documentary. Can you imagine, David, if I had just been paid, you know, one pound for every stream of Fire? It sounds like you've taken on all the risk and got none of the reward. The Fire the, the fire Festival was called, was it the fire Festival, the greatest festival that never happened? We could also say Andy King, the greatest blowjob or the worst blowjob that never happened. Exactly. There it is. And that's where doing podcasts with you and other people and doing speaking engagements, where I can at least tell people more about what they think was reality and it's not. Um, and that... You know, yes, I'm blessed to, to be Andy King. I'm blessed to have a wonderful partner and my amazing dog and that we have a good life, but it's not without stress. Let me tell you something. It's challenging a lot because of what fire ended up doing to me. And now the world is just waiting for me. And I know like I could, you know, right after fire, I could call anybody in Hollywood and talk to anybody on the phone and go to any party and go to any event and do whatever. COVID hit now, now things have calmed down, but people are waiting for me to make the next big announcement. And the second I make it, and the second the next big event or festival is successful and as close to zero waste as possible, and I've been able to help a lot of environmental groups and social groups and do it right, I will be trending very high and Mr. Popular in every circle. But right now, the world waits for me to make that announcement, you know, and that's pressure, you know, it is pressure. Andy, can I ask, if you could go back in time and have that one scene erased, would you go back and put it in the bin? Uh, no. No, what? but I would have planned properly. <laughs> I would have put together a, a plan that would, you know, help me help other people, but help me make monetize a little bit of it. And if I'm monetizing it, I'm able to give money to other people, you know, and that's, I should have put together a better plan for that. But I'm hoping that, you know, my second big chance, which will, you know, I'm not saying anything now, but there'll be an announcement soon enough on the next big event that it'll be designed just that way where we're already working on formulas where 30% of everything that I earn or that we make at the next big event will go to an environmental charity. And that I will come up, I, we're already working on something that you know, I'm willing to pay millions of dollars to do to make the world a better place. And um, that's what I need to do, you know? That's what I will do to make my name perfect again. Well, not per no one's perfect, but to clear it from any toxicity and to show the world, hey, I'm a great event planner. I'm a great storyteller. I make the world a better place. You should too, you know, that's the deal. I love that message. I absolutely love it. And I think by doing so, you will trump the virality of that meme or that, that scene. Uh, and I have full faith that that's what will happen. Can you tell me about some of the celebrities that you've worked with when you've been working in the sustainable event planning industry? Oh, um, <clears throat> there's some great ones. I mean, as you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is probably the 
biggest mouthpiece for sustainability for Hollywood. Um, so I've had the blessings of doing a few events for Leo, which is pretty cool. Um, the last big event I did for him, we had Coldplay perform. So I got to, you know, hang out with Chris Martin and um, enjoy their music during dessert. Um, and then Mark Ruffalo is the other one I touched on, obviously, that I really enjoy working with because he's the one that really focuses on sustainability. But he also really, he talks the talk, but he walks the walk. You know, he really leads a sustainable life. Um, I was able to meet Matt Damon. As you know, Matt does a lot of great work with the world of water, um, which is pretty cool. Um, God, we've, I've done a lot with a lot of different people, but from a sustainability perspective, you know, they're the ones that I think that are leading good causes right now through Hollywood. Um, I'd say for, for you guys, which is kind of fun, um, and I, I've told the story a fair amount, but I had the blessings of doing a big major event for the Rolling Stones and um, Mick Jagger was pretty funny to work with. Well, not as funny as Keith Richards, but, um, and I had the task of recreating the coolest Thai restaurant in New York and building the restaurant backstage a giant stadium, a big stadium in New Jersey where they were performing in front of a couple hundred thousand people. And literally, it was a crazy day in my life where I hosted a breakfast for 1,500 people on Wall Street, a lunch at my penthouse for the Russian embassy for 100, and then the backstage party for the Rolling Stones at 8 p.m. for 250 people or whatever it was. And at 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the phone rang and my assistant said it was Mick Jagger. I'm like, it's not Mick Jagger. And I thought it was my brother, Mark. And of course, he's like, hey, Andy, it's Mick. I'm like, yeah, hi, Mick, Mark, Mark, Mick, Mick, Mark. And I was like, no, no, it's really Mick. I'm like, yeah, OK, sure, Mick, what's going on? He said, well, I have a favor to ask. It's not actually just me. You know, it's, it's for Keith. And I'm like, Keith, Keith Richard weighs, you know, one kilo. He never eats. Like, I'm focusing on doing a restaurant for you. He said, no, 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 no. Keith wanted to know if you could build a billiard club, like a billiard club for when? He's like, for tonight. I'm like, tonight, like in four hours, five hours, but only in New York City or in LA and maybe in London, could I call props for today? I got my driver immediately pull up front. We drive 20 blocks up to this big prop studio. I could walk in and I said to the manager, there's a moving truck out front. What's the moving truck doing? I said, oh, they just unloaded a big shipment. I said, okay hold the truck, don't let them move, leave, I need them, I'll pay them anything. And I was able to get six big billiard tables and six chandeliers and wood paneling and big oriental rugs and a big, two big mahogany wooden bars and all these props that I could rent. The movers loaded everything on the trucks. We drove it, they drove it out to the stadium behind the Thai restaurant, behind the stage. And we built the coolest billiard club you've ever seen in your life in like two fucking hours. And literally, you know, in four hours, there were 300 people in there with a party with the top bartenders in New York playing pool and, you know, having cocktails and, and enjoying everything. And I just said, but I said to Mick, gosh, Mick, you know, this is going to cost a lot of money. I said, Andy, let me just tell you one thing. The last national tour we did in the United States we made $13 million on t-shirt sales. And this was in like 1995. I'm like, oh God, I wish I'd charged them a hell of a lot more than I did. 
to build the billiard room, which I did in four hours. But I thought it was just a joke at the beginning on the phone and it wasn't at all. I'm like, holy shit, oh yeah. But the ultimate team player, I pulled it off, David. Oh, wow, what a story. Oh, I'm in bits. And it's the diversity of people you work with, with as well. Like, I'm sure you've worked with like Rick Ross, is that right? Or you've met Rick Ross? Yeah, Rick was the other, that was the opposite of, yeah. Good old Rick Ross. Oh my God, I'm dealing with his manager, Gucci, who was totally crazy. And Rick was, you know, Rick was a tough one for sure. Rick, as you may know, in the, I guess, mid 2000s, he had staged his own drive-by shooting, which I didn't know. But this was like for social media and for press because he wanted it, he wanted to trend high in the press. But he told the shooter just to like graze his shoulder, not kill him or hurt him, just but like hurt his skin a little bit. Oh my word. But I didn't know all of this. And wonderful Billy McFarlane had booked him to do a to perform at a party that I was hosting for Billy. And it became just a, a virtual nightmare, complete nightmare. And to a point where I had to deal with Rick's manager Gucci, who wore Gucci sunglasses and a Gucci tracksuit and he was impossible to work with. We had to pay them in cash and I was given thousands of dollars in a paper bag to meet Gucci and his team in a, uh, in a park I'd never done in my entire 40 year career. And then good old Rick, I asked that they would go through metal detectors. And I had hosted an event recently for Beyonce and, and Jay-Z and they were all, their whole gang went through metal detectors, but Gucci's like, oh no, no, no after I had made arrangements for 10 Chevy Suburbans to carry 30 people, 30 posse of Rick Rosses. These are all people that travel with them everywhere. I don't know why. And I said, well, they have to go through metal detectors and or Gucci's like, sorry, Andy, they won't, they won't agree to it. And I said, well, they said, they're gonna cancel. I said, well, I don't, you know, my lawyers are like cancel the event. This is too, this is, you know, not safe for all these 800, college kids going to a big party at Rick Ross's format and they can't, you know, and so I said, well, geez, you know, Gucci, what's the problem? Why won't they go through a metal detector? And he said, well, Andy, they all pack. And I'm like, pack? What do they pack? Like picnics or they packed a lunch? He's like, no, no, they pack guns. I'm like, guns? Why are they bringing guns to a little posh preppy concert for God's sake? I mean, so finally, at the end of the day, we got them to leave their guns in the cars and come in and perform, thank God. And then they they sadly, after spending $100,000 in a green room that Billy wanted to build for them, for them to have pictures taken, they finished their songs and then they just, Rick and his team headed for the front door and left to go perform somewhere else around the corner. And poor Billy was just crushed like a little kid, all he wanted. So Billy got in his car, his Maserati was driver, followed them to the next venue so we could at least try to get his picture taken with them. Crazy, huh? <laughs> oh, I was trying to hold in my laughter that entire time. Oh my gosh, Andy. And the thing is, like, you were talking about all these relationships you have, and one of the relationships I need to touch on is you and your partner, Craig. That's why you're on the call today, because I know you vicariously through him and his family. How did you guys meet? Oh my gosh. So... It's a crazy story. So Craig was visiting the States and um, he was 
ordering a beer at a restaurant on Venice Beach, and I was ordering a drink or a glass of wine, rosé, which I'm known for. This was at lunch, and this was a few years ago, and we started to chat for five minutes, and that was it. And then six months later, he turns on the television and sees me in a documentary and says, oh my gosh, I met that guy. And we talked for a few minutes. And so he said, oh my gosh, I'm just, you know, meanwhile, poor Craig was not out. His family didn't know he was gay. And none of his friends knew he was gay. So it was his own personal journey that he was on. And so he reached out on Instagram, which of course I didn't know how to use. And I didn't even know I called, you know, a meme was a meme. I didn't know how to DM. I thought that was a sexual thing, a DM. I didn't know it was a message. So he tried to reach me on Instagram, which I never saw. Then he tried to reach me on Facebook, which I don't like because everybody's fake on Facebook and say they have perfect lives and they don't. So I don't follow that much anymore. And then he sent me a message on LinkedIn. And he said, and it bloop, it came up on my phone, LinkedIn, you have a message from Craig McLean. And I'm like, oh my word. And he said, you know, it's Craig McLean from Scotland and we met a year ago and you probably don't remember me, but I hope you do. And I don't want you to think this is creepy, but you know, I think you're really handsome and I'm coming to the States and I'd love to meet you. Uh, nobody knows that I'm gay, I'm not out. And so if you think this is horrible and creepy, please delete the message immediately and don't tell anybody. <laughs> so I, of course, responded. I said, oh my gosh, that's so cute. And um, I am hosting a big pre-Oscar party in Beverly Hills in LA and I'll be around and um, why don't we meet for lunch? And so, of course, life was different then because I couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed by people and cameras and, you know, phones. And so poor Craig is walking down the beach and we meet and we try to go to my one of my favorite restaurants where we couldn't go because, of course, it was a mob scene and everybody was videoing us. And Craig was in a panic because he's like, nobody knows I'm gay or out. I can't be on video anywhere. You know, we finally found a little spot that we could eat at with privacy, which was nice. And then we hit it off. And the next day he flew to New York and I took him to Kinky Boots, one of his first Broadway shows. And, and then a few days later, he flew to New Orleans and spent a weekend with me there. And then we left New Orleans, went to Miami, down to a meeting, uh, management meeting that I had and went to Ultra, a big music festival where he got outed a little bit because he got caught on camera, but he wasn't supposed to know me, you know. Then um, we had kind of a quiet existence, quiet life for a while. And then I was invited to go to the Emmys, which of course I said, Craig, you're coming. So there he was in the red carpet, but then he fibbed to his family and all his friends and said that he was working for a employment agency as, and he was being staffed as a bartender or a waiter and then he agreed to stand next to me on the red carpet. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Um, and so COVID hit and poor Craig could not go home for almost two and a half years. So we were together through COVID, which is a true test of a good relationship, being together morning, noon and night, breakfast, lunch and dinner. And we cooked together and worked at the farm together and traveled and did our thing. And uh, here we are now living in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. What a rich story. Yeah. And as you know, I just came back from Scotland, which I loved. Finally got to meet his parents and his friends. And 
Um, we rented a little house in Prestwick and had a fun party there and then rented a place up in St. Andrews and had his whole family up there for a weekend. And um, they didn't throw me out of the country and things seemed to go pretty well. So we're hoping that his family next step are gonna come visit us in the States. I can't believe the word or the name Presswick came out of your mouth. Like, I live there right now. I, I drove from Presswick to Glasgow today and just hearing the real Andy King just mention he popped down the road to, to Presswick is just so bizarre. I wanted to quickly touch on um, the indirect effects of fame to Craig. Like, how has he managed and embraced that? Because he, he has in, inadvertently signed up for that lifestyle. Is there any training or lessons that you can do to preempt someone for that? I can imagine it's really difficult. Um, it was pretty poor guy. I mean, our first big date in New York City, we went into one of my favorite restaurants, but I asked to have a booth, you know, so it was semi-private, but not completely. And then he'd say, uh-oh. So we have, a, we have a saying now, which is Craig says, there's a sighting, which means someone has recognized me so wherever we go there's a sighting but he's like uh oh there's a sighting over to your left don't look up oh, there's a sighting over to your right oh someone is videoing you now they're videoing us oh no you know and then of course i'm like don't worry you know don't worry and then of course boom he's like oh i'm not worried but this video of you, you and me and then uh, is now gone viral and it's like andy king is at this restaurant right now with an unknown person and um like oh no he's and he's such a samantha and i didn't know what samantha meant because i really though i'm though i know sarah jessica parker and matthew broderick and i certainly know sex in the city but didn't realize that kim cattrall played the part of samantha where she always drank a a cosmopolitan which is one of my favorite drinks so i was drinking a cosmo where someone took a picture of me and videoed it and then put it on the internet. So it went totally viral. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, so that was definitely an adjustment for Craig, always trying to, um, you know, he went, on a, he went on a Canadian tour with me where we were dealing with two, three, four, five thousand people a night. But he was able to kind of help get me from one place to another, keep people back for as long as he could and really help bring normalcy, which was nice, you know? Um, I think that it it hit Craig quicker than he thought because People Magazine here in the States did an article saying Andy King finds love after 58 years. And that was fine for here in the States. What he didn't know was that it got picked up by the Daily Mail and it went viral um, in Scotland and, in, and all throughout the UK. But it made it easier for him because he had so many people reach out to say congratulations and we're so happy for you. and. We didn't know you were gay, but this is amazing. And Andy seems like a nice guy and on, on, on. So that made it easier, I think, for him. All of his close friends and his family have been so understanding and so kind, you know? I think the, the age gap is probably the challenge of me being 60 and Craig being 28, you know? So that's definitely the stretch of people's minds trying to figure out how that works. Um, but you know, Craig's not attracted to people his own age and either am I. So it's a match made in heaven. I just need to say, shout out Craig. What an absolute golden human being, especially for setting up this podcast as well. Like it's 
like you had no obligation to entertain my ask to do this, neither did you, Andy. Like this is doing me oh, the world of good, but doing very little for you. But perhaps it's fulfilling that north star of leaving that legacy that we spoke about. So to kind of reflect on our conversation and to bring that forward to the guests as we wrap up, if you were to kind of provide one message to the listeners of this podcast, what would it be? Well, I'd say, um, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to take risks and get out there. And if you've got a passion or a dream, chase it, you know, don't sit in a cubicle doing something you don't like for your whole life. Think of how many people we know have been in a career that they've hated forever, you know, and that's just sad. Take the risk and don't be fixated on the money. Yeah, we need to pay our bills, but you know, no one cares about the kind of car you drive anymore or what you're wearing. Well, I mean, we hope not, but um, that, you know, be the person you want to be, but, you know, be kind, you know, and try to drive kindness and positivity. And we're all in this life together and we're not here a long time. And so why not make this world a better place while you're here? And I just think it's so important. And if you're passionate about something and you're really good at it, the money will follow. And you have to remember that. And that's, I think, my, my word for the day. And if I could pick this mic up and drop it, I would. But unfortunately, I can't because that was a mic drop moment. What's next for Andy King? What's next? We're working on some co pretty cool projects. Um, I'm teaching the sustainability course right now, as we spoke about earlier, <clears throat> for event planners throughout the UK. So that already got launched, but I think you'll be able to sign back up again after the first of the year, sometime in the new year, which is really cool to teach people about hosting cool parties and cool events, but doing it the right way. Um, we're working on the next festival. We can't make announcements yet. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm aligning myself. I want to align myself with some pretty cool startups and young new brands that are doing cool things. And the old days of like paying an influencer 50 grand for a post or whatever is out to me. But I wanna be able to help smaller brands. I wanna be able to obviously probably monetize a little bit of it myself, but at the end of the day, doing a post for 500 bucks and not $50,000 is pretty cool. But I wanna be able to help spread the word on other people that are trying to do the right thing. And, you know, get that, you know, in a place where, um, yeah, I think one of the reasons why um, I'm doing a lot of this is to try to really help other brands and good brands gain exposure and sell product and sell their services because those are the kinds of people I want to help. But at the same time, hopefully helping myself. And one of the ways we can do that too would be even with your listeners, David, like, um, for me to think properly about expanding my followers is a smart thing. So to get people to follow real Andy King um, would be helpful. And the more followers I have, the more I can spread positive words um, to them about cool people doing cool young things. You're, you're amazing, Andy. Usually I wrap up podcasts by saying, where can the people find you online? But I don't even need to ask you that question, Andy, because people are going to follow you between the last zero minutes and the last 60 minutes. People have found you already. I don't need to even plug it on the podcast, but all the links will be 
uh, in the bio. Okay, good. Um, can I ask one question to um, end this podcast? And it's a yeah. very go ahead. Have you tried Buckfast? Oh gosh. Well, funny you mentioned good old Buckfast. So of course. Craig had his poor mother sending Buckfast to the States, not knowing that even to ship it was like a hundred pounds or something for the bottle. Craig brought Buckfast to me and I tried it once, but it reminded me of like church wine gone wrong completely. It was just, but it was quite strong. It was like, oh my word. So we were invited to stay at very good friends of mine home in London in Chelsea. And they live in a very large home. And, um, the husband, my friend Charlie, was the creator of Thomas the Tank. Um, so yes, you have a room full of very posh people. And it was a beautiful dinner party. And everybody's very, very aristocratic and very high level. And so my friend Claire, the wife, says to Craig, geez, did you get enough to drink? And he said, um, well, yes, but you know what? I actually have a, I, I have a bottle of something I'd like to bring down to the dining room. I'm like, oh, no, God, no, please, this isn't happening. So Craig says, have you ever heard of Buckfast? You know, and Claire's like, Buckfast? No, darling, I have never heard of it. I have no idea what you're talking about. So of course, Craig goes up, brings down a bottle. There's like 12 of us around this beautiful table. And she said, well, let me go and get the proper glasses. And Craig says, oh, no, you don't drink it out of a glass. You drink it out of the bottle. She's like, the bottle? Oh, no, God. So she takes a sip. So, oh, darling, I love this. So I guess she starts passing it around the table like it was some crackdown it was just some horrible you know drug party i'm like what is going on everyone's like oh god darling this is lovely oh what's this called again we must write it down i'm like it's shit it's it's what homeless people drink on the street i don't know what it is but people seem to love buckfast and oh yeah there it was the birth of buckfast in the posh neighborhood of chelsea they'd never heard of it before but i now know that many of them are drinking it now so there we were you know my trip to scotland didn't matter every party every sports game any anything out came the buckfast you don't need glasses you can drink it out of the bottle yum i'm going to keep an eye on the sustainable parties that you throw uh if there's any buckfast at those parties and it's been an absolute pleasure you've done me a huge favor coming on today and it was amazing to learn about you an amazing podcast um, well david I've loved every minute of it and keep spreading the love. You're doing the same thing, right? So I think that's very important for sure. What, what message do you want to say last? Great question. I think everyone can take a message from being the real Andy King or the real David McIntosh. I think my takeaway from this podcast is the power of authenticity. Only I can present David McIntosh to the world like that's my duty to the world to do that and I see so many people wear a facade or wear an eagle because of Instagram and not only is it creating an, an ego and a persona but it's also creating perhaps an emotional crisis because it's the eagle and the, the persona that gets the the love not the person itself and until I unmasked myself and started embracing the things i love podcasting i love doing this and in scotland craig will tell you i probably get a slagging for doing something like this but i am happy and when i get praise on this podcast it's me that's getting the praise not a persona not an eagle uh so i think embracing authenticity because it's your duty to the world is probably the takeaway that i've learned from this and the message that i want to share Andy. i love it 
It's very important because think about it, you know, the world can be quite mean. It really can, right? And at the end of the day, let's all spread some love. Let's do it. And you're doing a great job. And thanks for having me on. The pleasure is mine.